I'm Dr. Brian Goldman, host of the CBC podcast, The Dose. Each week, we answer health topics in a smart and sometimes counterintuitive way you won't hear anywhere else. Like, what's the least amount of exercise I can do to get the benefits? Which psychedelics can improve my mental health? And how can I check for cancer if I don't have a family doctor? Top experts help me bring you what you need to know in plain language in about 20 minutes. Find The Dose on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. This is a CBC Podcast. Welcome to Ideas. I'm Nala Ayed. The Roy Rogers Show, starring Roy Rogers, King of the Cowboys. I grew up in Schenectady, New York in the 1940s and 50s. My heroes on TV and in the movies were Cowboys, Roy Rogers, Hopalong Cassidy. Um, they were sports figures. Mickey Mantle. Mickey Mantle levels on one for a homer to right field, scoring Maris ahead of him. It's number 12 for Mantle in World Series play and putting him only three behind Babe Ruth, the greatest slugger of them all. Anthony Rotundo has spent a lifetime thinking and writing about masculinity. What fascinates me, I think, has to do with my own issues over the years. I grew up as a smart, skinny kid in a tough neighborhood. And in self-protection, I learned to take on the protective coloring of traditional masculinity and interest in sports knowing how to talk dirty, knowing how to fake talking tough. Um, the voice in my head was actually the voice of terror. <laughs> you don't want to, you don't want to get beaten up. You want to have friends. So play the game. Scholars call it the man box, or the mask of masculinity, where boys and men patrol each other's behavior to enforce an idealized notion of manhood. Okay, well, uh, I'm going to tell you a little story. Am I allowed to curse? So, in 1965, I was 14, and um, I was against the war in Vietnam. So I went to a demonstration in New York City, and... As I was walking down the street, somebody yelled, go back to Russia. And I thought, go back to Russia? Go back to Russia? I said, no, I'm being patriotic. You know, we have the right to dissent and protest. His response was, fuck you, you commie Jew faggot. Now, it stuck with me. It, 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 it haunted me for a long time. What does communism, Judaism, and homosexuality have in common in his mind? Why would he say like that? And my answer was, all three are not real men. Communists want to share everything. They want to tear down the big men. They want to take away from the rich. And that's all very feminizing. Jews are the architects of socialism. They're not real men. They're wimpy. They're effete. And, of course, gay men are not real men. So it occurred to me that that kind of conflation of those three ideas in one moment 
came so casually. It was one of my first moments where I started to have to think about like, what is that? What was that all about? Theodore Roosevelt once said, when men fear work or fear righteous war, they tremble on the brink of doom. As the 20th century unfolded, many assumptions we still have about masculinity hardened into apparently natural truths. In part two of Man Up! The Masculinity Crisis, Ideas contributor Mary O'Connell explores the modern forces that have shaped our view of manhood. The story of the four white feathers provides an early 20th century cultural definition of manhood. The tale is based on an English adventure novel published before World War I. It grew so popular, The Four Feathers was eventually turned into no less than seven movies. The story involves Harry Feversham. He resigns from the British Army at the start of military action in the Sudan. He refuses to follow in the footsteps of his military family. Have you no duty towards your country? Faversham, if you do this, you'll regret it for the rest of your life. I'm sorry, sir. I've made up my mind. You're deliberately shocking your duty, sir. I refuse to accept your resignation. I am within my rights to resign, sir. You cannot refuse. I never thought I should live to see a Feversham play the coward. When Harry Feversham resigns, three fellow soldiers hand him a white feather. The four feathers symbolize cowardice, or in other words, the failed man. To restore his suspect manhood, Harry eventually travels to the Sudan and rescues a military comrade. Harry Feversham has manned up. The phrase man up so often gets used in explicitly or implicitly political ways that sort of sets off a bell for me. Um, Anthony Rotundo's book is called American Manhood. Uh, To me, the phrase has a lot more to do with a war on effeminacy, but it's also a war that gets fought even on the playground um, and in college dorms. Effeminacy, after all, is basically when a man behaves the way we expect a woman to behave. And when men don't behave in culturally male enough ways, that's never been a thing looked on by favor with other men. But it seems to me, as there are more and more questions asked about manhood and what a man should be, the more there's a reactive backlash. And it seems, Anthony, this war on effeminacy, as you call it, it's present in many cultures. You know, I remember just a few years ago, China banned what it deemed effeminate men from reading the TV news. And then further back, um, I can remember decades ago, Joe Clark, the former Canadian prime minister, was viewed as less of a man because his wife didn't take his name. A war on effeminacy. And the phrase man up is about 
better policing the traditional boundaries of what masculinity is. In the First World War, aggression, character, and commitment were descriptive buzzwords for men. The cultural conversation often centered around the idea that the war itself birthed a new and more virile man. However, more private discussions focused on venereal disease, shell shock, and anxiety. Historian Angus McLaren, professor emeritus at the University of Victoria, tells us that after World War I, it was believed that many men became afflicted with low energy, aging bodies, or impotence. So, medical treatments were explored to boost masculinity. Some scientists, some medical scientists, began to um, claim that they had ways of rejuvenating men, that is to say, conquering old age, but rejuvenating them sexually as well, of restoring their potency. Serge Voronoff, a um, a Russian-born medical scientist working in, in France, pushed this to the extent of transplanting uh, slices of, of chimpanzee testicle uh, into males, into adult men. And, uh, of course, you have to recall that thyroid extracts were being used uh, to cure uh, problems uh, with, with the thyroid gland. And uh, it, it seemed to make a certain amount of sense that if they took healthy testicle tissue and put it into men who into the scrotum, that it would have a similar sort of rejuvenating effect. Memory, energy, and sexual functions would be restored. So you have chimpanzees being used in Europe by Voronoff. In in America, you have various doctors using goat glands as well. Now, were these doctors or surgeons performing rejuvenation therapy, were they respected? Were they well-known? Oh, they were very well-known. Serge Voronoff uh, taught at the the Collège de France in, in Paris, uh, and in uh, Vienna, Eugen Steinach um, carried out what, no, what were known as the Steinach operations. And he was a very eminent medical scientist who indeed was nominated for the Nobel Prize in Medicine on a number of occasions. And these operations were carried out um, uh, on, on thousands of individuals, including well-known personalities like W.B. Yeats, the Irish poet, and Sigmund Freud as well. In his case, he had the operation done in the hopes that it would cure his uh, cancer. Mm-hmm. Now, were success rates published? Was there lying involved? Well, of course, that's the interesting thing, <laughs> that in many cases the claims were that the therapies did work. Now, we know with, uh, with hindsight that they couldn't have worked with you know, what we know about science today. It also sh- should be noted, too, that there was a certain um, sensitivity by Steinegg and others that they were not just restoring sexual capacity. They, they themselves were sensitive to the notion that these types of activities were associated with quacks. So they tried to strike a more sort of scientific pose to say that they were interested in general physical vigor with sexual capacity just being one sort of symptom of, of, of good health. I mean, it, it's been said by some that it was no surprise that rejuvenation research um, emerged uh, in Central Europe following World War I, in part because, of course, uh, Germany and Austria had been defeated. And uh, a number of authors at the time drew the parallel. You often have the the quite explicit notion that in rejuvenating individual men, 
you will also be um, beginning the process of rejuvenating the German nation as well. And that um, the notions of rejuvenation were widespread in fascist Italy and in Nazi Germany, but also too in the Soviet Union. And all of these societies were talking about creating new men and new new nations. So these sorts of parallels were, were frequently drawn. There was a widespread belief that rejuvenating men through physical therapies reflected a nation's strength, status, and freedom. Sigmund Freud pointed to structural forces to understand the post-war state of men's minds. He blamed military psychiatrists for acting like machine guns behind the front, making them the immediate cause of all-war neurosis. In 1920, psychiatrist Sir Robert Armstrong Jones said, this did not apply to British men. This might be applicable to life on the Austrian-German frontiers, but not to virile, sport-loving, open-air men like the British. In Upholding Manhood, questions often emerged about the future of boys. Here we have our young scout explorer about to embark on his first canoe ride down the rapids of one of the innumerable streams that unfurl their silvery ribbons in the beautiful Canadian wildwoods. Our little friend has come miles to learn about navigating canoes in treacherous waters with his Indian pal as his teacher. Rough waters, looks like plenty of thrills ahead. As the 20th century progressed, boys were increasingly monitored for gender nonconformity. The Boy Scouts offered to help, providing lessons on citizenship, the great outdoors, and chivalrous behavior. Parents and professionals often worried that if sons strayed from male ideals, they could become sissies. Sometimes attempts to quantify effeminacy became institutionalized, according to sociologist Michael Kimmel. He points to the work of American eugenicist and psychologist Lewis Terman, who became famous for measuring the IQ of children. Terman also grew fascinated with quantifying masculine and feminine traits in the young. And here's why. Parents were saying, I'm worried about my son being gay. It's really scary. And following Freud, homosexuality was seen as a gender problem. Insufficient masculinity. You, you know, you might become gay. For girls, they didn't really worry that much. So what Terman decided was, I can measure this. Because masculinity and femininity are not innate. They're simply the, the, the accumulation of all of the things around us. So I can, I can measure this and then I can tell parents and teachers how to help their boys and girls become gender appropriate. So the test starts out with a bunch of, you know, a bunch of like fill in the blanks, like um, true false questions, um, which are gendered. I, I, I'm, I'm thinking off the top of my head now. An egg cooked in grease is boiled, broiled, poached, or fried. And if you said fried, it would score it as feminine. And if you said any of the others, it was scored as masculine. Why? Because a boy wouldn't know how to cook an egg. 
So what you know is gendered, right? Um, he had a bunch of things like, If you had a year to travel and plenty of money, what would you like to do? Hunt lions in Africa. See how people prepare their food. Um, you know, you know, I mean, you know, it's utterly gendered. What books have you read? Theodore Roosevelt, Lenin. <laughs> um, and then he asked questions like, Do you think that the greatest fortunes should be divided up and distributed among the poor? If you said yes to that, feminine. If you said no to that, masculine. So your, quote, nascent political ideology was gendered. So what he basically was doing was he was gender coding what you thought, what you fantasized about, what you knew, what you didn't know. And if your kid was doing fine, no problem. But if your kid seemed to be, if uh, was a boy and, and scoring pretty high on the feminine side, then you'd have a parent-teacher conference. And the parents would be told it would be a good idea for the boy to play more sports or to read these books and not these books. So you could encourage him. So, so is this about cultural anxiety around potential homosexuality or uh, cultural anxiety around effeminate masculinity or? It's both end. It's not an either or. Terman in his book, Sex and Personality, he does talk a lot about male homosexuality as a problem of insufficient masculinity. So it was clear that what was on his mind was how do we keep boys from becoming gay? And the way to do that is have them read Biography of a Grizzly by Ernest Thompson Seton and not read Rebecca of Sunnybrook Farm. If I get them to read the right books, think the right things, fantasize about the right things to fantasize about, know this, the, right, the right things, and, and not know the wrong things, then we can push them in that direction, very gently glide them into more masculinity and therefore heterosexuality. You know, I looked at this test, and if you actually did all the parts of it uh, in, say, middle school, it would have been like four hours. Uh, oh, here, the, la the very last question in the entire test is, do you always remember to brush your teeth? If you say yes to that feminine, say no to that masculine. That was the last last question. <laughs> so many codes. Yeah. Everything was coded. Oh, and, here, and here's a little bit of racial coding. Um, one of the things he measured was your emotions. Do some of these things cause you fear or disgust or pity? Darkness? Snakes? Negroes? So that reveals in that moment in 1936, that reveals who the test taker is. And of course, if you say, yes, you're scared of those things, feminine. If you're not scared of anything, masculine. Does anyone know how widespread, like how many, how many students took these tests? Is there any thousands, idea? Thousands, thousands. Um, now, the thing that's interesting to me is my, both my parents remembered taking this test in the 1930s in the oh New York God. City public schools. Neither of them remember a parent-teacher conference or any, any kind of remediation, but they both remembered having taken this test. So it was actually quite widely used. It was the most successful personality inventory. And by the way, you know, it gets reproduced in various ways in, in other psychological inventories today. 
quote is by Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant. Is war something noble to which man is inspired through his love of honor? My answer to Kant's question is no. My name is Tanner Merlis, and I'm a professor of communication and digital media studies at Ontario Tech University. So Kant's question points to a flawed explanation of an individual's motivation for war. It's all about honor. Well, is that really the case? Many men fight wars because they've been compelled to by a state, or they get incentivized to do so at least because they need a job. Or even worse, they get manipulated into believing that fighting a war is ultimately honorable by a slick wartime propaganda campaign. Um, and honor itself is something that is socially constructed. So I wouldn't say that men naturally or biologically or organically wish to fight because that is honorable, but nonetheless a persistent point in the history of war. 101st, we're coming out! James Francis Ryan of Iowa. What is this about? Your brothers were killed in combat. Saving Private Ryan. Directed by Steven Spielberg, the movie tells the story of a group of American soldiers led by Captain John Miller, uh, played by, by Tom Hanks. And the mission here is to find and bring home a paratrooper, Private James Francis Ryan, who is played by uh, Matt Damon and whose three brothers have all been killed in war. So it sort of represents men as brave, willing to sacrifice, uh, a kind of brotherhood of soldiers. While Hollywood often paints World War II, an economic boon for studios, as a mission to fight the evil forces of fascism, masculinity scholars believe what also drives many men is the desire to impress, admire, and connect with each other. It's called homosociality a major feature of masculinity. I asked Tanner Murleys if he thinks this idea is the driving force in war. When we get into these sort of questions, I mean, we don't want to prioritize one determination over the other and basically say that it was all about homosociality or it was all about sort of the democratic ideal or it was all about the actual real threat, you know, posed to the liberal internationalist democratic order by by, by fascism. I think it's all of those things. But certainly men were appealed to um, in much wartime propaganda, you know, with the ideal of to be a man, you must fight and to fight is to be a man. Apropos the concept of homosociality, this, this was about, you know, men kind of impressing other men through their capacities as, as war fighters, um, not, not only, of course, to survive the war, potentially win the war, but to validate a certain ideal of masculinity um, for fear of being judged if those qualities or characteristics were not present. And there's no way I was going to desert them. Someday we might look back on this and decide that saving Private Ryan was the one decent thing we were able to pull out of this whole god-awful shitty mess. You know, um, there's a quote by Theodore Roosevelt. It made me think how difficult it must have been, obviously, for men to reintegrate into society after the war. He said, quote, when men fear work or fear righteous war, they tremble on the brink of doom. Hundreds of thousands of men that were all trained to sort of see themselves as fighters. All of a sudden, we're 
post-World War II faced with a hyper-individualizing consumer culture. And uh, a tremendous effort was put into reintegrating these people into the society. So masculinity played a very significant role in this reintegration process. I took me some steel, I took my two hands, and built an automobile, I built a dodge. So to be successful, the post-war man would not need to win the war. They'd need to you know, win at consumer capitalism, a man who would labor for the family without expressing their feelings, without complaint or protest. This is a man who would um, you know, take the wages they earned and parlay it into forms of status consumption uh, in the emerging consumer society. How many dreams can you shape in a minute, an hour? Ask the people of Dodge. You're listening to Ideas. We're a podcast and a broadcast heard on CBC Radio 1 in Canada, across North America on Sirius XM, in Australia on ABC Radio National and around the world at cbc.ca slash ideas. You can hear Ideas on the CBC Listen app or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Nala Ayed. I'm Helena Bonham Carter, and for BBC Radio 4, this is History's Secret Heroes, a new series of rarely heard tales from World War II. They had no idea that she was Britain's top female codebreaker. We'll hear of daring risk-takers. What she was offering to do was to ski in over the high Carpathian mountains. Of course it was dangerous, but uh, danger was his friend. Subscribe to History's Secret Heroes wherever you get your podcasts. Writer and feminist activist Bell Hooks once wrote, The crisis facing men is not the crisis of masculinity. It is the crisis of patriarchal masculinity. And the system, she argued, harms women and men. The nuclear family provided a cocoon from the Cold War, and the ideal 1950s middle-class man held a reverence for the workplace. Contributor Mary O'Connell brings us the second of her three-part series, Man Up! The Masculinity Crisis. Patriarchal masculinity required many men to don an emotional straitjacket while keeping pace on the payroll treadmill yet still reigning freely and authoritatively over their families. Tanner Merleys. So while most men had very little control over the conditions of their wage labor in relation to, say, their bosses or corporate America, while on the job, whether that be in the blue-collar factory or at the white-collar office, when in the home, men were socialized to see themselves as pretty much the bosses of their wives and children. Oh, Lord. We give thee thanks from the depths of our humble hearts for all the blessings thou hast seen fit to bestow upon us. We thank thee for the food which graces our table, the roof which covers our head. We thank thee for the privilege of living as free men in a country which respects our freedom. 
a TV show uh, released called Fathers Knows Best. Um, it's a popular sitcom that normalizes this post-war patriarchal family unit. So the father, uh, Jim Anderson, is a breadwinner sales manager of the general insurance company. Uh, he always seems to know what's best for everyone, uh, much better than his housewife, Margaret, and their three kids. Um, so, and, you know, in this particular juncture of history, um, to be a real man was not to be a communist, a Marxist, or a socialist. And there were great uh, consequences if one identified with these political subjectivities that would play out everywhere from, you know, the baseball diamonds to the factory floor. Um, you know, to the to the white collar office. The McCarthy era has been described as the American hunt for a communist under every bed. Even if there were only one communist in the State Department, even if there were only one communist in the State Department, that would still be one communist, too many. The 1954 televised hearings investigated the communist presence inside U.S. government departments. But the net of suspicion widened to other parts of society as well. One communist on the faculty of one university is one communist too many. But Anthony Rotundo says the Red Scare was about more than hunting communists. It was also about hunting deficient men. Communism was one of those things that just seemed absolutely beyond the pale. What else was beyond the pale? Homosexuality. And it's almost as if once things got beyond a certain line of unthinkability, once something became the unpardonable sin, all the unpardonable sins began to look alike. McCarthy got more positive mail about going after homosexuals than he got about going after communists. And more homosexuals were fired from the U.S. government during the McCarthy era as security risks than communists were, or former communists were fired. So, you know, people have referred to it as not just a red scare, it was a lavender scare. Was it um, the sexual aspect or was it the idea that um, they're not real men or they, they're a virus, a contaminant, or they can't be trusted? Um, at one level, the thinking about what a homosexual was, um, was a man who didn't have his inner woman under, under good enough control. Um, and if these people are too feminine, they don't have their woman under control, how are they going to be tough with the communists? But, you know, there, there are a number of statements from McCarthy about going after, and, and, and some of his allies in Congress, about going after commies and queers. And, you know, the first time I read that, I thought, what? Are, those are two different categories. What have they got to do with each other? But in the minds of those people, um, that fear of not only of homosexuals, but of the woman inside a man, um, it was, it was an, another way to do gender policing. More recently, um, you know, another political example, 
Bill Clinton was the first person to run for president who had a a wife who was his equal in marriage and who had her own totally independent professional career. And that sent the Republican Party into a panic. And one of their main lines of attack on Bill Clinton was that he was going to bring his wife's liberal feminist agenda into the White House with And there was a whole wave of cartoons which showed Hillary in a pantsuit and Bill with an apron on. And there was even one particularly notorious one of Hillary dressed up in a an S&M costume um, with leather and a whip. And Bill is on his hands and knees saying, what Hillary problem? Again, that power should be about manhood and masculinity. And um, we need to be in a panic about anything that, that smacks in the least of effeminacy or womanhood in our um, political system. Numerous tests throughout the 20th century have measured insufficient masculinity. In Canada, the fruit machine was a device created by a Carleton University psychology professor to identify gay men, who then might be removed from the civil service. Sometimes measures to uphold patriarchal masculinity are unconscious, unspoken, seeds planted in childhood. Feminist and social activist Bell Hooks believed boys feel pressure to sacrifice their true self for the patriarchal ideal. She calls this soul murder. Ryan Thompson has written on this subject as a contributor to cbc.ca. Ryan grew up in a small town in Ontario in the 1990s. He adopted a concept first described by a popular psychologist, the best little boy in the world. I was a textbook best little boy in the world. Um, I was the valedictorian in elementary school and in high school. I was the student's council president. I won athlete of the year to compensate almost on a subconscious level for what my mind had convinced itself was a fatal flaw. I had that double agent status where I wasn't overtly feminine. Um, I played sports and like that was enough to camouflage me amongst them. It allows the homophobic people in your life to speak freely. And they think you're one of us. They think you're one of us. So they think it's a, a safe space. To, to spew venom. Hmm. Let's talk about your family dynamics. Um, yes, you uh, you have many stories around this struggle. Your yeah. grandmother could tell me about that. So uh, one day I went to Canada's Wonderland and they had a booth that was making rings where they would engrave your name on it. And I bought one. So I put it on my left ring finger, which is your wedding band finger usually. Um, during a Sunday lunch um, at my grandmother's house, um, we would all gather after church and have a lunch. And my grandmother noticed I was wearing the band on my left side. And she said, 
did you get married and not tell us? And my parents had been recently divorced and a sense of humor was a big thing in that side of the family. So I said, no, it's got my name on it. I put it on there to remind me not to get married. Instead of a laugh, there was silence. And my grandmother said, what are you, some kind of faggot? And they did laugh. They did. That one struck me to my core, right? Because this was a safe person until that point. When people said they didn't know I was gay, um, I'm embarrassed to say that I took it as a compliment. Why? Especially at that time, because I'd been taught that homosexuality was implicitly a rejection of the masculine. It's like self-negation. Exactly. And if someone said to me, I have no idea, that's a validation of my masculinity. What is at the core of this in terms of masculinity? I think um, the connection to misogyny is certainly very evident to me. Um, there is a belief or understanding that once you come out, you are immediately feminized in the patriarchal view. And to forsake your masculinity or your manliness in any way is inexcusable because it is the most prized thing in our society. And without the understanding that sexuality is innate, they view it as a choice. How dare you make that choice? How dare you give up that gift mm. of patriarchal power, of masculinity, our most prized thing? It's a shallow understanding of masculinity. Our society is just like, you're white, you're straight, you're male. You just won the, you just won the lottery. You're going to throw that away? How dare you? And... um you had a difficult relationship with your father. He was openly homophobic. Uh, he mentioned more than once about putting all gay people on their own island. Did it get any better with him? I would say I'm still processing it. Um, it's been a year since his death. But I think even before he died, I started to have an understanding of our relationship. I certainly have some regrets. But at the same time, no, I don't because I don't feel bad about the amount of time it took me to heal. I don't feel a responsibility that I had to fix everything. And he was a bit of a tortured soul himself, I guess. Was he? Is that fair to say? Yeah. And that was part of my understanding when that moment I came out, it's like I stood up to the bully and saw who he really was. And in fact, we are a lot alike. I'm also a deeply sensitive person. And he was the same. And the problem was he was stuck and trapped in that world that was created for him where the definitions of his manhood and his masculinity did not allow him to express that sensitivity. It was beaten down and, and stuck and it would often like come out and burst out in, in violent ways. And he had a temper sometimes and, but at, at his core, 
like he was a deeply kind and and sensitive man. I don't want to paint him as like some rabid abuser. He wasn't. All those masks he wore. The masks of masculinity. Exactly. And he certainly wore one. And the understanding of him as a whole human being is where I find my healing. Ryan's father was trapped in what some scholars call the man box. He was part of a generation of men who came of age in the socially turbulent 1960s and 70s as the feminist movement took center stage. The women's liberation movement set off cultural fires, seemingly everywhere. Women were restless, resentful, and angry. In Vancouver, women set fire to a porn video store. In France, there were public bra-burning events. Miss America pageants were ambushed by protesters, some hurling mops and makeup. On the streets around me, women's bodies are offered for fantasy. Everywhere, illusions are for sale. I need to understand what is going on behind these doors and how it affects my own life. As women attempted to commandeer the cultural conversation, they were met with backlash. Political theorist George Gilder, in his books, Sexual Suicide and Naked Nomads, stated that men were fragile creatures and only marriage gave them purpose. And he warned, aggressive career women could make men impotent. Sociologist Michael Kimmel says the 1970s was a strange time for many men. There's two trends that we're talking about. On the one hand, feminism creates a backlash that what women are doing is not nature. Their nature is to be warm and loving and nurturing homemakers and housewives. You know, you're going against nature. Stop it. You're destroying men in doing this. It gets us too confused if you're competing with us. You know, if, you, if you're going to singles bars and looking to have sex, if you're going to work and like looking to move up in the ladder, it confuses us too much. Stop. That's one thing. There was another thing that with the men's liberation movement begins with an idea that women have it right. The feminine mystique is true. Women are frustrated and angry and itching to break out of their chains. Men, think about the chains you're in. You're just as much of a slave as women are to these old ideas of masculinity. Never show your feelings. Be a rock, a sturdy oak. Be violent and aggressive all the time. Be, you know, be king of the hill. Like, like, Yuck, what a recipe for misery, right? So men, stop this. Women have shown us the way that they need to be liberated from their roles. We men need to be liberated from our roles. We'll be happier. That's the psychological piece. Now, the question is, what is the source of women and men's unhappiness? Women said, sexism, patriarchy, men. Right. Men said, well, patriarchy 
maybe, or women. Maybe they're the source. And that's where the men's liberation splits between a psychological group that says men need to be free and the political group, which becomes the men's rights movement. That blames women. That blames women, right? So I was involved in the men's liberation movement and I said, yes, patriarchy is the enemy here, not women. So I you know, sort of supported the feminist women who were showing us the way to break out of those roles. It must have been quite a heady time. Tell, can you take me back? I mean... Uh, okay. Uh, well, uh, at the time, I was getting my PhD at Berkeley and teaching at UC Santa Cruz in California. And the Santa Cruz Women Against Rape, and they were doing something really radical, which was they were confronting the men. They were going as a group with the woman who'd been sexually assaulted to the man's workplace and empowering the woman to say, you you know, sexually assaulted me, you did this, and uh, you know, I'm really angry about it, it wasn't right, et cetera. Not, not, don't bring the police in, confront them. So a bunch of us guys um, heard about this, and we thought, that's really radical. Why don't we organize Santa Cruz Men Against Rape and go talk to the men afterwards? The women will go in, and they'll confront the guy. We'll go in and talk, how do you feel? Like, let's talk about what happened. Um, Do you see her point of view now? You thought it was consensual, but it wasn't. How does that make you feel now? So that was a kind of politicization of how do we follow the the lead of the women. Um, um, Women had consciousness raising groups. So men tried to have consciousness raising groups too. But, you know, women would sit around and complain about how miserable they were because of the constraints of femininity, and the men would sit around and talk about how hard they had it. And I thought, this there's something wrong with this. You know, it's like white people sitting around talking about how hard it is given affirmative action to get a good job. Nah, we have to talk about privilege. Try getting people to talk about privilege. Not so easy. You know, get a bunch of your friends together and say, let's talk about middle class privilege. We're all middle class. <laughs> First time I tried to do this, um, one guy said, well, I'm, I'm Italian. I'm not really white. I tried to have a group about whiteness. Well, one of the guys, I'm Irish. British called us black. You know, I'm, well, I'm Jewish. I'm not white. You know, couldn't, no white people in the room suddenly. Get people to talk about privilege is really hard. So um, the men's groups fell apart. The men who eventually ended up in the men's rights groups because they were talking about how unhappy they were and politicizing it. In the landscape of masculinity in the early 90s, there were lots of different groups that were vying for attention. Um, you may remember the Promise Keepers. Gentlemen, 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 hear my voice today from the Lincoln Memorial to the Steps. They were evangelical men who wanted men to reassert themselves as the dominant partner in the marriage and they wanted subservience from their wives but they wanted partnership the good part was they wanted men to be responsible good fathers good husbands good workers they had a critique that men were sort of like all over the place you know having sex all the time and not really caring about anybody else but themselves so they were trying to re-anchor them to a kind of old traditional christian masculinity and many many protestant churches around the country developed men's groups 
And I believe probably that those guys became better fathers to their children, although they also so emphasized the sort of traditional purity of the girl. They had these ceremonies where the fathers and the daughters pledged themselves to each other, chastity balls. And and, uh, I don't think that was a vehicle for much liberation. So you had some men politicizing their anger through early men's liberation. And then the pro-feminist men were saying, hey, it's the patriarchy, dude. It's not women, right? Right. So if your ideology and your politics are about resentment, you pretty much stay stuck. You know, you're not going to change the world and you're not going to change yourself very much because the politics of resentment are kind of self-feeding. The men's rights groups have stayed angry, you know, and they feed that. And then the pro-feminist men, I think by and large, a lot of us got kind of trapped in a kind of self-flagellating world of if you recognize your privilege, then you can't take up that space of privilege. Therefore, you have to cede the ground to the marginalized. Therefore, you have to sit back and kind of curl up and be quiet. And I don't think that really does anybody very much good, frankly. No shift on the landscape of masculinity received more attention than the emergence of what was called the mythopoetic movement in the 1980s. The term welcomed men to, quote, restory ourselves in order to restore the world, end quote. Men were tired, alienated from each other and society. Inspired by feminism, a largely white group of psychologists, poets, musicians, storytellers, and authors followed the lead of Robert Bly and his blockbuster quasi-manifesto, Iron John. The mythopoets believed the male identity crisis suffered from a number of tangled roots, fatherless boys, dominant mothers, and dog-eat-dog capitalism. It had emptied men of emotion and spirituality. Self-help workshops and retreats flourished. We are leaving our time now. We are leaving our time now. There are places where time moves more slowly than here. We honor all four directions, east, west, north, south. And we also honor the fifth direction, the vertical one, which is in us today. So it takes a little bit of courage to come here. There's lots of men in their 20s say, I'm doing fine, Jack. I'm fine. It's true that 14 women have left me and two beat me up, but I'm doing fine. It's true, I'm bleeding from all my pores, but I'm fine. (laughs) Why a gathering of men? I mean, that's really rare, isn't it, to have a workshop for men only? Maybe 20 years ago it would have been rare, but lately the men in various parts of the country have begun to gather. I think that um, it isn't a reaction to the women's movement, really. I think the, the grief that leads to the men's movement began 
maybe 140 years ago when the Industrial Revolution began, which sends the father out of the house to work. What impact did that have? Well, we received something from our father by standing close to him. To varying degrees, some masculinity scholars felt torn about the mythopoetic movement's goals and its impact. Michael Kimmel. I heard so many poignant stories at these retreats where the men would say, my whole life, I just waited for my father to say, I'm proud of you, son, and he never said it. Just that, you know, and these men were so emotional about it and they were, re it was genuine. What these mythopoetic gatherings did was it broke down men's isolation from one another. That if we see everybody as a potential competitor, if we see everybody as, as dangerous, then we can't connect with them. And we need desperately men in our lives. We can't ask women to answer all our, our emotional needs. I'm saying this is all really positive. And so the, the, the bad news was they, you know, they developed these kind of retreats and bonfires and drumming and everybody had their shaman animal and they were doing all these Native American rituals and they would greet each other by going, oh, which I no. mean, oh, yes. Well, I mean, you know, it, I mean, it, it was the living definition of cultural appropriation. It was a celebration of cultural appropriation. Right. I mean, and unapologetic. I thought that they were practicing what I came to call red face. That gave me the creeps. I didn't like that. Secondly, I don't share the analysis that women have their sphere and men have their sphere and, and women have their own energy. And I, it's a kind of Jungian anima animus thing. And it, it doesn't resonate for me at all. I think we're all people and that we share a lot of characteristics and we're not separate species. And, um, and so analytically, I felt that the separation part was, was problematic for me. Men's movements would separate further in the 21st century. Some emerged within far-right groups, while others emphasized the need for deep and intimate fathering to begin, with positive results for men. On Ideas, you've been listening to Part 2 of Man Up, the Masculinity Crisis by Mary O'Connell. Readings by Tom Howell and Greg Kelly. And special thanks to Jean Dalrymple for providing archival material. Lisa Ayuso is the web producer for Ideas. Technical production, Danielle Duval. The senior producer is Nikola Lukšić. The executive producer of Ideas is Greg Kelly. And I'm Nala Ayed. For more CBC Podcasts, go to cbc.ca slash podcasts.